So I think people get pitching wrong. People spend a lot of time pitching as if they are trying to sell somebody something. I pitch as if I'm trying to entertain and invite them to partner with me. And it's a subtle difference. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast, where host Barry O'Reilly seeks to synthesize the superpowers of extraordinary individuals to think big, start small, and learn fast. Here's your host, Barry O'Reilly. Welcome to the Unlearn Podcast. On this show, I'm delighted to be joined by Jim McKelvey, co-founder of Square, the financial services and digital payments company that helps millions of sellers run their businesses all over the world. He's been everything from a glass-blowing artist to an author and founder of a multi-billion dollar organization. And his latest book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time, is fantastic. He shares stories about starting Square and his philosophy for building disruptive startups. In fact, he continues to do this in Invisibly, which looks at giving customers more control about how their personal data is monetized by advertisers. He's also just been appointed as the chairman of the Federal Reserve Bank for St. Louis. This show is packed with so many fun facts and tips. Jim is so funny to listen to, but so informative. So before we get started, let's go back and hear how it all started for him. No, there wasn't some bright line in my world where I just you know, woke up one day and said, ah, everything has changed. And I actually start the innovation stack by telling a story of sort of me as a seven-year-old and getting ripped off and nearly beaten up, but ripped off, certainly, and being angry and unable to do anything about it. And then, you know, sort of tied that into my 40-year-old self uh, getting ripped off and being able to do something about it. (laughs) But, you know, between that, you know, the glass blowing and the planes and the Fed and all the other stuff that's happened has just been, you know, sort of without a theme. I guess if there was a theme, if you had to sort of force it into a narrative, the narrative would be, I'm somebody who gets very frustrated when I see something that I think should work that doesn't. And so frustrated, in fact, that I get obsessed and then I have to do something about it. Not always immediately, but I have a lot of things in my head that I was like, well, this should work better. And if I just could free up a year or two, I could fix that. You know, So there's this feeling that I have that anything can be fixed. It may not be true, but it allows me to start projects. And sometimes it turns out that it is true. So what helped you develop that within yourself? Like, I I often see a lot of people who see problems and go, oh, there's another problem. But this notion of actually taking action, even when you might understand the domain or the theme, as you sort of are alluding to, right? Like, what's driving the curiosity to take the action? It's this sort of wonderful blend of grumpiness and optimism. The grumpiness is getting pissed off at the problem enough to want to do something about it. And then the optimism is to at the last minute say, but I can fix that. And you can't go one way or the other. If you're nothing but grumpy, you'll stay grumpy. And if you're nothing but optimistic, you'll not even notice the problems. So the grumpiness allows you to, or I should say allows me, I won't talk about everybody else, but you know, in my case, I see a lot of problems that, that, that bother me. And then I think, oh man, I like, we could do that. If I just got the right team together, if we just did this and this and this, like we could fix that. And sometimes it's not true, but it allows me to start the journey. And the interesting thing that I found when I was researching the innovation stack is that a lot of the companies that are now sort of household names and, you know, so the largest, most important companies in their field began with a founder who just found themselves in a really unpleasant situation and didn't quit, as opposed to some hero, somebody who was 
sort of specially gifted or insightful or brilliant or rich or like whatever sort of the superlative is that we use to distance ourselves from our heroes. I'm friends with Chris Bosch and Chris just wrote a great book. And I talked to Chris about stuff. And the thing that I always have trouble with Chris is like, he's basically seven feet tall and he's an NBA star. But like when Chris gives me some sort of life insight, I always have to go, oh yeah, but you were seven feet tall. But it turns out if you read Chris's book, which is fantastic, it talks about the amazing amount of work that it takes to get something done in the NBA, even if you are seven feet tall. So like a lot of us look at it and say, well, I could never play basketball because I'm 5'4". But then I think there are counterexamples now where people who have the right sort of work ethic and stubbornness are able to do amazing things, even in areas where we wouldn't expect it. I love this. One of my favorite quotes on Learn is something gives up either the person or the problem. So, so which is going to be, be the first? I think it's really interesting to hear, you know, talk a lot about that, you know, because I think the narrative that we paint, especially even in innovation and startups is the founders are always these heroes. It's almost like we go back to ancient times and have to create this sort of narrative that this one individual lifted the world on their whole back and made it happen. Well, I, I mean, that's a lot of crap. The results, right. And yeah. it's easy to attribute like one or two characteristics to that. That person knew the right people. They were seven feet tall. They, yet you're coming at this from such a varied background in your own experiences of what you're doing differently. What has helped the persistence, the consistency, the, because that is a skill that you develop. How did you push through some of those hard moments as you were starting the business? Like, I'm sure you walked into rooms where people said, why is there a glass blower in here telling me how to change the way payments should be done? Like, how did you push through that? Well, I mean, you know, at least I finished college. I mean, Jack didn't even graduate. So like the two of us were kind of a motley crew when we were presenting, except for the fact that, you know, he'd started Twitter and I had a bunch of other sort of successful companies under my belt. So in Silicon Valley, it doesn't matter so much what you look like if you fit a stereotype. And the stereotype is a young t-shirted, angry zealot. And Jack and I sort of pulled that off. So it turns out we conformed to the stereotype they were expecting. And I think we were sort of lucky in that regard, so that we were both, you know, sort of on script for Silicon Valley. But I think more importantly, you know, your question of how do you keep going is one that I've, I've thought a lot about because that turned out during my research to be this, this amazing question. Like, how do people who are successful keep going? And yeah, we write the books about the people who are successful. And here's how I think the story unfolds is you take a thousand people and you all get, let them start companies. Well, 10 of them are going to succeed. Okay. One of them is going to succeed wildly but 10 of them are probably going to succeed. Maybe 30% of them are going to succeed to some extent. You'd probably write stories about the 10 and then you'd just, you know, like beatify the one in a thousand. But in all of those cases, there's an element of randomness and luck. And even if you're the person who's one in a thousand, the question is, are you smart or are you lucky? And the problem that I realized is that if you're working hard, you always feel like it's the hard work that got you the success as opposed to, or maybe you're smart, like maybe you're brilliant and hardworking. Well, that's great. So you sit there and write a book saying, hey, I'm brilliant and hardworking and here's how I did it. I didn't feel qualified to write a book like that because I recognize that a lot of my success is probably just luck. So instead, when I wanted, or I felt like I had to write this book because I discovered that in fact, the people who were the most successful were just very plain folks 
who didn't have any superpowers, weren't actually all that smart, weren't actually all that diligent. Like they had some tenacity and all of them, you know, sort of miraculous people in their own right, but they weren't these larger than life characters, except for one guy. And like he was, he was larger than life, but that's because I didn't meet him. You know, he's, he's, he was dead a hundred years before I started my research. And so there was this time for the legend to develop. I think the critical thing for people to understand is that what I talk about in the innovation stack is this exceptionally powerful tool that can be wielded by a normal non-superhero. So that's the Tony Stark approach to superhero, right? You're just a guy, but you got really cool stuff or Batman, you know, so Iron Man and Batman are the most relatable superheroes because you can say, well, you know, if I had that flying suit, I could probably do the same stuff. And the answer is, okay, cool. So here's the flying suit. What I love about the book, and it's you know, like it's packed with great anecdotes and examples, and more specifically, I think a lot of contrary approaches that I love and I know the listeners love, you know, where you took approaches, especially when you were starting off Square, to like really give people experiences of the product, like working, no prototypes, like working, like demonstrating the technical skill of what the product could perform that would excite people and make them go, wow. But you also were able to sort of position it to say to people, here's 140 reasons why this is not going to work. And so much of the notion of a pitch deck is to explain how amazing an idea is. And yet you're showing up telling people like, why this is such a a bad idea and it's never going to work. And we're not even going to show you a prototype. Actually, we're going to show you an experience of it working. Like talk people through a little bit of the thinking when you were huddling down in your desk before you walked into that first pitch to sort of say, why are we going to do it this way? So I think people get pitching wrong. People spend a lot of time pitching as if they are trying to sell somebody something. I pitch as if I'm trying to entertain and invite them to partner with me. And it's a subtle difference. So first of all, entertainment's important. If you're doing anything that involves people ingesting content for more than about 30 seconds, I feel it's your duty to entertain. So one of the reasons it took me three years to write a book is because like every other page of that book, I struggle to put something that'll make you smile. And I mean, even even like there's a dirty joke in there that my publisher didn't catch and it like it like got through the final print. And I was like, I can't believe you're letting me put this in there. But fine, man, it's your company. I'm just a guy. So there was this burden on me to make every other page fun. Now, maybe I did it, maybe I didn't. But like it was the same thing during the square pitch. Like the square pitch was the best time you could have for an hour. Like if you got to see Jack and me pitch and Jack's not a, you know, sort of a joking sort of guy, but he was really good. You know, he's got the straight man thing. I got this sort of a clown thing. And we really rock those rooms. And so one of the things you want to do if you're entertaining is surprises. Well, taking people's money when they're not expecting it is surprising. And that got their attention. So we, we made sure we took their money. And then another thing that's surprising that nobody does is we talked about all the problems. Like candidly, made a slide with 140 reasons that Square would fail. And then we honestly discussed all the stuff that could go wrong, including amazingly, the thing that that was, you know, sort of the lead off subject of the innovation stack was when, you know, when Amazon attacked Square, then everyone expected Amazon to win how Square actually won. But, you know, like Amazon attacks and Apple attacks, you know, were listed on our 140 things that they, you know, that could kill this company. So it was just a much more pleasant experience for everybody in the room because everyone was having fun. 
And look, if you start honestly discussing your problems, people don't just pile on. What the natural response to that is to say, oh, I can help you fix that. Like I remember this one guy who was on the board of Amazon and we were pitching and he was like, oh, I can help you with Amazon. He's like, oh, that thing where you think Amazon's going to kill you. Don't worry, because if you take money from me, I'll tell Jeff to back down, right? Well, it turns out we didn't take his money and Jeff attacked, you know, so <laughs> I, I should have listened maybe, you know, but, but the right. point is, you know, it was this wonderful experience to be in that room with us pitching because it wasn't this sort of attack and defend theme that I see in almost every other pitch meeting. Yeah, and I love the way you use the word experience as well, because I think that's such a a great part of great products, great design, great interactions with people. You're alluding to like humor, to fun, but to actual showing the rigor of your thinking with these 140 reasons about what stuff could go wrong. Like, Like you're showing all your sides there to folks where they actually really get to know you as an individual, because, you know, even as an investor yourself, like, you're investing in the people in almost in, in the first instance. And do I like this person? You know, do, what, what are they showing me about themselves? Are they fun? Are they somebody I want to partner with? Are they somebody that I can work through difficult situations with? Can they create a bit of magic? That fun experience where you would take people's money, literally take their credit card and process a transaction in the room. Like one of the things we do at one of our on-demand events platforms from Nobody Studios is we literally book speakers while they're in the room. We literally say to them, hey, Jim, would you be interested in giving a talk in three days for you know $500 at, at 12.15 to 12.45? Sure. And then we'll send you a text message straight away to, to book you in that. So people get that experience of like, it's the magic of the product, the situation, it comes to life. So how has that thinking of experience then sort of gone through everything you do? Because that's what I'm hearing when you sort of talk about this stuff. So I'll tell you about a project I'm working on in the physical space right now. I'm in my glass studio these days trying to develop a new drinking glass. Not that the world needs one. We have perfectly good glasses. I'm trying to design a bad one, something that is slightly difficult to drink from, something that is a little more involving of the senses. Like it, It has to be beautiful and it has to sort of, when you pick it up in your hand, it has to sort of capture your attention. Not all of your attention, like it doesn't, like it's not sharp or dangerous, but it's so interesting that it draws the attention back into, you know, the act of drinking. And I've been working on this for almost eight months now. Like every little bit of this experience, I want to be perfect. And about halfway through the design problem, I noticed that when you're drinking from a glass, especially a whiskey glass, which has like a three and a half inch, four inch diameter, you actually look at the room through the bottom of the glass. And so I started, I changed the design to put this lens at the bottom of the glass to like capture the room and flip it upside down and sort of magnify it in this way that's really interesting. At least it was interesting to me as this like other hidden experience. So I'm sitting here designing a physical object, but at first you see, oh, cool, it's a glass. And then you see, oh, wait, there's this lens here. And then you see, oh, there are these waves here. And then you see this internal reflections. And then you see this sort of prism and like all these things are being built into something that's as simple as a whiskey glass. Now, I haven't finished it yet because I don't think the experience is right. But if I ever get the experience right, I will probably make a, a few of these things because that to me is interesting. And, you know, some sort of nondescript lump of glass or ceramic that holds liquid to me is not interesting. I mean, I drink out of red solo cups as much as any 
parent these days. Good tailgater. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the best thing about that red Solo cup to me is that you can stuff it through a chain link fence, like some sort of primitive light bright. You get red cups and blue cups and have your political affiliation like shoved into some chain link fence. Like that's the best thing about the Solo cup to me. Yeah, and many usages as well from beer, beer pong to beer pong, when you yeah. finish it, it never ends. It's amazing. Yeah. But again, I, I love these glimpses into your psyche of taking what often people might think is inanimate objects, but putting them into like greater experiences that are pretty special. And I think sometimes people lose sight of that. It's always fascinating and refreshing to hear, you know, the thought that goes into what you're thinking about when you're designing something like a glass. So people have these sort of, it's almost, I, my background from building games was this notion of Easter eggs and computer games, right? Yeah, people, absolutely. People would get so even more excited about the Easter eggs because it was this unfolding experience that you thought you just, you know, bought a console and you're going to sit there and play Donkey Kong for four hours, but then something special happens, magic, that sort of shocks people to go, oh, this is special. This is yeah. unique. This yeah. is really different than what I expected to happen from just drinking from a glass or playing this game or having this product experience or, you know, the first time you use these things where it's just like, wow, like that's so a special Barry, thing to create. Very. When you were designing Easter eggs in games, did you ever get to measure the audience's reaction after finding an egg? Well, it, it was still earlier days, you know, like you don't get to necessarily see the excitement of that. Today, you can probably tie these in when people are playing more games online and you can see yeah. like the conversations that happen around it. But, you know, when you don't have the telemetry, like, again, yeah. it's like when you, you're sitting there with the glass. Like the only way you're going to see that special moment is if you invite someone to come and have a drink with you and watch them do it. It's like true customer sort of testing in the in the purest form, right? Where you get to see, do they see it? Do they not see it? What's their first reaction the first time they see something? That's really special, right? Because most people never saw the, you probably haven't seen many of the first wow moments when they use Square or when someone got out of an Uber or Lyft and didn't take out their credit card or all these experiences that we're designing, we, we don't get to see them as much anymore. And that's half of the motivation for me to build products actually is to, is those experiences for people, you know, that's what actually excites me. So it's interesting. The reason, the reason I asked the question is because what I noticed was that immediately after an experience like that, you have this window of attention that may last two seconds or five seconds or 20 seconds or something. It's not minutes, okay? It's seconds. But as soon as you've said or done something that's surprising and hopefully positively surprising, then all of a sudden the brain wakes up just for this moment. So actually, if you read the innovation stack, one of the tricks that I play on the reader is I put some of the more profound or I think important messages like one beat after something that I find entertaining or really amusing or fun. So I'll put a smile on your face and then while your eye is still reading and you're just starting to laugh, I will deliver what I consider the important message. And I do that with my kids too, right? Like every once in a while, I have a great moment with a kid and one of the kids will then actually pay attention to the dad for like 10 seconds. And then it's like, okay, you know. And so maybe, maybe I can, you know, give a little help at that point. Don't think that people are paying attention. Don't assume that they owe you your attention because they paid a ticket to sit in your seminar or because they bought your book or they 
you know, signed up for your blog or any of that stuff like you. I believe we earn attention like continually. And so it's one of the reasons I do public speaking. It's so difficult to keep an audience informed and entertained for 45 minutes. Like it's just such a challenge and I love trying to do it. And the only way you can do it is to go in front of a bunch of audiences. (laughs) So I think these are great tools to have, especially like if you're trying to do something new, the ability to get somebody's attention is critical because most people never notice anything, let alone something that's new, let alone something that's new and better. And you think you built something new and better, I defy you to show it to 100 people and have them even notice that it's anything different, like if you're not in a room. So let's let's dive into a little of the uniqueness maybe of this show and the, the thoughts of unlearning. And I think for someone like you, the this is a topic I know is interesting to you as well. Like for me, I kept coming up across some of the most talented people in the world. And a lot of the things that had made them successful to date was actually limiting their success as they tried to go forward. They were stuck in the same behaviors, patterns of thinking, which actually limited them as the world changed, technology changed, you know, the situations changed. You're someone who jumps into different domains, different themes all the time. And I'm sure a lot of the things that have made you successful in one can often limit you as you go into another or actually make you successful. So when you think about unlearning, specifically in the work that you've been doing, what are some of the lessons that you've had or are the things you've had to unlearn? Well, I'm a big believer in, in unlearning. And I, I love the way you phrase it because I've, I've had the concept in my behavior for years, but I, I haven't called it unlearning. I like the sort of the, the connotation of unlearning. But to me, it's making space. It's making space in your head for stuff that doesn't work or might not have ever worked, but more likely has worked well and then stopped working, you know? So, I mean, this morning, Andrew Cuomo resigned. And I don't know if you've followed that, but like one of the things that he said, and I, don't, I didn't follow the allegations against him, but one of the things he said when, when leaving was that, you know, he hadn't really changed his behavior, but the standards of what is acceptable behavior had changed around it. And I can imagine that because, you know, I've said some stuff that was fine for me to say 20 years ago that that was not fine for me to say. And I'm not, I'm not complaining about that. Like that's, things should be changing. And if you stick too rigidly to what has worked, you'll find that you end up one of these sort of fossils who is so out of step with what's working that you, you no longer have any success. So to me on learning is this, it's the Marie Kondo approach to your brain. Like you just go through, even though you've been through that drawer six months ago, you're still going to go through that drawer and go, why do I still have this t-shirt? And, you know, do I really care? Does this spark joy? Like, how can you get rid of stuff in your head that isn't working or at least sort of continually question? So I have a trick that I use that's been really helpful. Maybe your audience would like this. Uh, It's not actually my trick. I learned it from uh, the guy that worked good to great, uh, Jim Collins. Yeah. And when Jim was writing good to great, he gave me a draft of the book. I was one of the guys that I was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. It was a while ago. But I remember getting a copy of Jim's book before it was published and then talking to Jim about some stuff. And he had this concept that he got from Cork Walgreen, which was the don't-do list. And the don't-do list has had a profound effect on my life, which is simply, it's a list of stuff that you shouldn't be doing, don't enjoy, are not good at, are a waste of time. And you put all that stuff explicitly down on a list. And before I heard about the don't do list, what I had to do 
what I had was a to-do list. I had a list of all the stuff that I was going to do, but I didn't have an explicit list of stuff that I was not going to do. I love the lists as well. One of my other favorites was Leonardo da Vinci. He never had a to-do list. He had a to-learn list or to-discover list, which I, I always thought was a really interesting way to frame the world. He would have a list of, of questions or things that he wanted to learn. What? What's the difference yeah, between Napoli and, and Rome? How could I figure that out? I kind of, I kind of thought that was a, a fun way to look at the world too as well. And I like that, but it, it doesn't serve you on a daily basis. No. Like the don't do list has an immediate daily impact, which is you get more time in your day. Like as soon as I implemented the, the don't do list, I ended up with like two or three hours of free time a day. Like I was bored out of my mind. I was like, what am I going to do? Like, what? About, how am I going to fill this? It's miraculous. Yeah, well, the, the way we sort of describe unlearning is it's not necessarily forgetting, removing, or discarding your knowledge or experience. It's the conscious act of letting go of outdated information and actively taking in new information to inform your decision-making and action. And I think one of the, the interesting parts about starting to frame it like that is even with your time, as you mentioned, we fill up so much of our time with stuff that either we're not good at, we don't enjoy, that takes energy away from us. But when you make space for the things that you're really good at and not do less of the things you're not really great at, uh, you do get more productive, right? You get more energized, you get more focused, you get more throughput in many ways. Yeah, yeah. It's a great space to put your head in. What was the most surprising thing that was on your list? Oh, on my don't-do list? Do? News. I got rid of news which is funny because my new company is trying to save journalism, but I don't ingest news. I don't read it. I don't watch it. That's why I don't know the details of the Cuomo resignation. I don't know. And I've been doing this for years. It, it was so bad that when 9-11 happened, five of my friends called me because they were afraid I wouldn't know that we were under attack. And I can't tell you how much stress and angst I have avoided by not following what's now a 24-hour news cycle. So that was pretty surprising. Very, very pleasantly surprising. That was great. I got a dozen things. But here's the thing. Like, I'm not trying to pitch you on my list. The last thing I want to do is have your listeners going, oh, I'll do what McKelvey did. Like, <laughs> no, no, just, just, just understand that you should probably explicitly remove stuff as explicitly as you add stuff. Yeah, no, great tops. So looking forward then, you know, you're, you're about to take up a new role going in, into a whole new area of, of financial services, so to speak. What's drawn you to that? And what are you excited about the contribution you can maybe make in that space? Well, yeah, so I'm becoming, I'm moving from deputy chair to chair of the St. Louis Fed. So I'm a director of that. Now, for those of you who don't understand the Fed, it, it is a federation of 12 independent reserve banks. And then the Washington sort of central group, the FOMC, and they sort of coordinate the reserve banks, but we all sort of work independently together. So, you know, my role as chairman of the St. Louis Fed is going to be mostly making sure that the right information gets to the people in the system. And it's a quasi-ceremonial role in that, you know, there's some handshaking and ribbon cutting and stuff like that, but it's also about gathering economic data and then going to Washington a couple times a year to make decisions on how that data gets used. And what needs to be unlearned in that space? What are some of the things you're seeing? Oh, my that, God. What's making you grumpy, but encouraging you to be take action in that space? 
Well, there's a very interesting situation we're in right now because we're still in a global pandemic. And this is the first time we've ever shut down a functioning economy. Because before the pandemic, if you can remember that far back, things were pretty good. I mean, economic growth was good. Inflation was in check. Like Things were looking quite good economically. But the health crisis hit, and we essentially shut down a working economy which has never been done before. Now, we've had recessions and blowups and wars and other things that have disrupted economies. But this is, this is a case of the doctor induced a coma in the patient, not because the patient you know, was comatose, but because like, that was the best thing to save the patient. And so we put the economy in this quasi coma. So the question is, well, if the economy was healthy going in, how do you bring it out in a healthy way? Realizing that you've got all this crazy amounts of debt and other things and expectations and unemployment's weird and we can't get folks to take $15 an hour jobs now. I mean, just all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And I think the key unlearning there is to just continually recognize that you don't get to copy the solution for some previous crisis because we haven't had one like this. So, you know, just keep your mind open and be willing to listen to the person who proposes something that sounds radical, but in fact, might actually be the solution. Well, I think that's one of your uh, core tenets as well of the book, right? For many times, we, the simple answer was just to copy what somebody else had done somewhere and then just recycle it and create another different business. And people have been successful like that. But again, I think oh, I do it all the time. The tenet of the book yeah. the, to have truly great businesses or something different, it means stepping out into the unknown. I mean, if you want a billion dollar business, you can copy your way to that. You want a hundred billion dollar business? might be time for some innovation. Like you might have to blaze some new trails. But again, there might be some areas where you can build a $100 billion business copying. Probably, uh, there's probably some counterexample. But look, generally, I think the philosophy that I espouse in the book is not one that's anti-copying. I'm not against copying. I think copy, copy everything you can. Copy everything you can. Hire experts, but be willing to accept the time when you don't have an expert because the problem has never been solved before, right? So who is the expert at building an electric car company before Tesla? Well, there wasn't one, you know, and is Elon Musk to be credited with something? Well, I think so. You kind of got to say, look, first electric car company. There were a couple of sort of half-hearted attempts by GM and a few others. You know, Nissan threw up some sort of lousy underpowered golf cart. But the fact is that Musk didn't have anything to copy really when he started building and scaling Tesla. And that was an area where you needed entrepreneurship. And I think I would like to see, and this is the reason I wrote the book, is I would like to see normal people like me who someday encounter a problem that they could solve if they were willing to do something new, be willing to do something new. And that doesn't sound like a big deal until you realize that we are viciously programmed to be conservative. Like our entire society, our entire social structure, our genetics, just the way almost everything works points to supporting replication as opposed to invention. And if you start to invent, what you'll realize is that your friends try to protect you by talking you out of it. Your family comes to you and says, Barry, what the hell are you doing? And if you're not ready for that sort of icy bucket of water over your head, then You may quit and you may quit prematurely. And I think that's a crime. That's the thing that I was hoping to prevent. Like, I'm hoping that somebody reads my book and goes, oh, okay, well, that was kind of entertaining, but completely irrelevant to my life on a daily basis. And then, you know, a year and a half later, they find themselves in some really weird situation where they're going, 
wait, I know how to fix this. I think I can do it. I just can't copy. And I'm really, unco- oh my God, this is what McKelvey was talking about. But just for the record, literally today, I was on a plane with my wife and we were flying somewhere. And she read the book two, three years ago when I was writing it. She's, I was just, she's heard five drafts of the thing. Just today, she got one of the ideas. She was like, yeah, I get it now. Like it just happened. Now it makes sense. And I was like, oh God, <laughs> five years of my own life takes to get down the learning curve. You know, <laughs> these are tough concepts. Well, it's a great book, Jim. It is entertaining. It's informative. There's lots of fun Easter eggs in there as well for people to enjoy. And I'm and one really to- dirty joke. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm definitely tempted to go back and revisit them even more. But listen, yeah. it's been a pleasure to get a little bit of time. Here's some of your insights. Thanks for putting this book together. I think anyone who reads it is going to take a lot out of it whether they take action straight away or it's five years on a flight between God knows where and the penny drops. I just want to thank you for it. And thanks for being on the show. Barry, thank you so much. And I really appreciate what you're doing. And you know, keep preaching on learn. I'm trying. Got to unlearn a lot myself to get there, but it's fun. So thanks. Awesome.